0: Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Now last week we left off, or we shouldn't say left off, we we studied John chapter 1, and we only did one verse. And you remember the verse was verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth and so we showed well the verse is the incarnation the word becomes flesh do you remember what I told you last week I said if anyone ever asks you this question I don't know or explain to me how how God become man or man could become God how does that work does anybody remember the answer to that question what I told you to say to people if they ask you that question the answer is I don't know I don't know the answer, but I would ask questions of the person, and I would say, okay, let me ask you some questions. Explain to me what gravity is, and they'll start saying, well gravity does this, and I go, no, 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 don't tell me what it does, tell me what it is. No one can tell you what gravity is, and once you get them there, you say, I'll give you an easy one. Explain to me what consciousness is. They'll start saying, well it does it. no, not what it does, what is it? See, they can't explain to you what it is. They can only tell you what it does. So you take that philosophical argument right there and you state to them, look, I can't tell you how God became a man, but I can tell you how this God-man affects me in my life through the resurrection and carrying my sins on the cross and everything else, amen? So you can use philosophical arguments when you dialogue with people. There's nothing wrong with a philosophical argument. So, so, and, and by the way, this, the whole God-man is the only thing that explains Jesus Christ and everything that he did. So we're going to pick up now at verse 15 of John chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 15 through 18 tonight. And John chapter 1 verse 15 says this, John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, now the text comes back to John the Baptist and it says that John the Baptist said that Jesus he, he has a higher rank than I and that he existed before John now when you think about John the Baptist saying that Jesus existed before him he's taking you now back to verse 1 again he's backing up John 1 1 in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God to the pre-existence so now he's saying this guy pre-existed now What do we mean by that? Now, here's the cool thing where Scripture, use Scripture, interpret Scripture. Always keep your finger, turn to Luke chapter 1. Go to your left to Luke chapter 1, and watch this right here in Luke 1. Now, we're going to go to the moment or the time there where... um, uh, the angel speaks to Mary about her going to be carrying the, uh, the, the Messiah. Now watch what's being spoken here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And it says, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now watch verse 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she, watch, she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. Question, how much older physically is John the Baptist than Jesus? Six months. They are cousins, by the way, but they're six months. He's six months older than Jesus physically. Now, When you take that and you realize, he says, but he existed before me. Going back to John 1.1, you have here the God-man. God pre-existed and you have himself as a man. He's six months younger than John the Baptist. And so the scriptures interpret scriptures that Jesus always existed. And John the Baptist confirms that. Now back to John chapter 1 again. Look at verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace... Now, when it talks about his fullness, it's the same Greek word that's spoken of in Colossians 2.9 that says, for in Jesus, for in him, all the fullness of deity of God dwelt in bodily form. God, man, again. And the real question about the fullness that we've received isn't uh, what we have received. But if you think about what haven't we received from God, amen? Amen. I mean, we've received love and peace and joy and mercy, relationship, the Holy Spirit, forgiveness. We've got all these things. But here's what I like. Look at verse 16. What have we received specifically from his fullness? Say it out loud. Grace. Louder. What is it? Grace, grace upon grace. grace. upon grace. That's right. Now, look back at verse 14 when we saw last week. Read that verse to yourself. Now, tell me what Jesus is full of. Grace and truth. So he's full of grace, and from his fullness of grace, we've received grace upon grace. grace. Now, let's kind of break this down and apply it to our lives. So I have this, um, it's about this big, maybe that big. It's a porcelain toilet, and I bought it in 1985. I've had it 37 years I bought it in Amsterdam the first time I went to Israel. We took a six-day trip to Amsterdam on that trip. I found it, I bought it, I brought it home. I throw my change in that little porcelain toilet. This is what I've always done for 37 years. One time when my daughter Vanessa, who is my oldest and is now 38 years old, when she was about five years old, she came up to me and she said, "Dad." Uh, Can you get me this? And I said, like a good dad, I don't have any money. That's right. And she said, yes, you do. And she marched into my bedroom on the dresser where I kept the porcelain toilet, filled with change. She got it. She marched out and she goes, see, you have money. Okay. So my daughter, Vanessa, very astute at that time, she realized what? That her dad can supply all of her needs. Any amens on that one? Now, take that and realize you and I, are we children of God? Say yes. Yes. And can God supply all of our needs? So why do we worry? Now, think about this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, it's that whole chapter or narrative about Jesus saying, don't worry about tomorrow. But then at the end, he says this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And then he adds in verse 34. Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow has enough problems of its own. Sufficient in the day is the evil thereof. Now, I have a question for you. Who are the only people that do not worry about tomorrow? Who are the only people that do not worry about tomorrow? Children. I, you know, And I get to observe this again in my life. I've got Willa who's two and a half. I've got Lincoln who's a year and a half. I've got Scotty, who's a year and a month. And now Nolan, who's two months, but he doesn't know what's going on. He's two months. But I, I observe them, and Willa, and Lincoln, and Scotty, they never worry about where food's coming from. They don't worry about what's coming next or what tomorrow's going to bring. They don't worry about any of it. And you know what you find in them? They're very joyful and they're very happy, right? Now, they're children. We are children of God, amen? And so like children who never worry about tomorrow, we need to kind of move toward that and realize I don't have to worry about tomorrow because God, my Father, gives me grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, upon grace of His fullness, amen? So go home tonight and don't worry about a thing. Thank you. Yeah, and then you look at me funny, right? Okay, good. Now, now look about verse 16 again. You look at it. Tell me what we have received of his fullness. It's obvious. Say it out loud. Grace upon grace. Now, when I read that, my mind has always flashed to my favorite story, which is the prodigal son, which I have not talked about in a long time, right? So I'm kind of overdue on that one. So the prodigal son, I think about grace upon grace upon... Now, look at Luke chapter 15 now in verse 20. Just a bit to your left again. Luke 15, and look at verse 20. Watch what it says here. Now, this is when the prodigal now is coming home. He's left. He's taken his father's inheritance, which would have been shocking to the original hearers because the prodigal son is not the firstborn. He's a secondborn. Plus, you don't get your inheritance until dad is dead. So when he says, give me the inheritance, it's like telling his dad, you're dead to me, dad, which is shocking to the people listening to Jesus' story. So he goes out, and he's living the nightlife, and he's got everything going on, and the money runs out, you know the story, and he attaches himself to a person from that foreign area there, because by the way, when a young person or any person gets away from family and everybody else and goes to a place where nobody knows them, they can pretty much sin it up and not worry about a thing, right? Nobody's going to tell them anything. So... He blows it. Now he's feeding pigs and he realizes, I got to get home again. And he comes home. Now, look at verse 20 to 24 and watch what happens here, it says. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion uh, on him for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe. That's the highest robe. That's dad's robe, by the way. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Who's the only person unhappy to see the prodigal come home? The fattened calf. (laughs) I set you up, okay? You guys have been reading way too long, okay? The fattened calf was like, oh, no, no, please, not me, okay? Now, verse 24. For this this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. By the way, before we were Christians, we weren't sinners. We were dead, right? We were dead to God. Um, He was lost and has been found, and he began to celebrate. Now, Now, think about this, because we've received of Jesus his fullness, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, what did he get when he came home? Dad's robe. Is that grace? He got dad's signet ring, the ring of authority. You're back in the business. Is that grace? He got shoes, right? How lovely on the feet of the man of Him who brings good news. And he gets a big celebration, right? Let me give you a by the way in that story. When the prodigal son leaves home, put yourself in his place. He went out in that world out there away from home with all this money, and you know he bought the best threads, right? To look cool. You know he's got some bling, bling going on, right? Probably a big P hanging from him right here. Okay, it wasn't the prodigal yet, okay. And then he's buying all the food for everybody else. Big celebration, right? He's got all that going on. Think about that. And then he comes home, and what does he get from the father? Cool threads, bling, and food celebration, right? Think, now listen, listen, listen. Everything he went out in the world looking for was always in his father's house. Never forget that because some of us have learned that the hard way, right? We walked away from God. We thought we're going to find something. We're looking for something better. And then we come to our senses and realize, I had it so much better at home. Everything that I really looked for was always in my dad's house. How much time we've wasted at times. Because we're looking for something when it's always in dad's house. Now, here's, here's the question because it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It gets all the necessities there. Did the son deserve any of it? Say it louder. No, he took dad's money to begin with and blew it all. Blew it all. Next question. Did the prodigal son, did he or did others put the robe and the ring and the shoes on him? Others brought it to him and others put it on him. He did nothing to put it on. He did nothing in going to get it. It was all brought to him. He just received grace upon, grace upon, grace upon, grace of dad's fullness. Here's what's cool about that. Did he repent? Say yes. He blows it all and then he repents. And Father quickly restores to him everything he lost. Can God restore to us pretty quickly if we repent? Yes, yes he can. Yes, he can. Now, <clears throat> let's go back to uh, John one seventeen. John one seventeen. next verse. Okay. So it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Huh, okay. So, the law could never cure us of, cure us of sin, correct? The law only exposes our sins, right? How many of you, you, the law exposed you tonight driving here speed limit wise? Anybody? The speed limit said this much, but you went a little faster. Anybody do that? It's okay. Confess your sins now before God the Father. Okay. So, it exposed you as a sinner, did it not? Did it, did it change you? Did it have the, does that sign have the power to change you? It has no power to change you and I whatsoever. But grace and truth come along and it meets in Jesus Christ where it has the power to change me. Now, let's get into this. Let me give you some applications from this whole John one seventeen thing, law versus grace. Now, the first thing I want to say about it is this. The Old Testament is filled with grace. So here's my question. Have you ever heard anyone say there's no grace, the Old Testament is just law? Have you ever heard something like that before? I've heard that. But then you have to think about that. Is that true? Well, the answer is no, it's not true. It's wrong. Because if the Old Testament is just God and law and the New Testament is grace, then God's like a two-face, is he not? It's like a Batman villain. He's one way, this way, one way, the other way. And here's how I know it's incorrect. How many of you have ever read the little book of Jonah? You ever read Jonah before? Isn't that a great little story? And Jesus confirms in the New Testament, Matthew 12, that Jonah is a real person, and it really did happen. And if Jesus said it, then guess what? It happened. Now, Jonah, does he want to go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians there in Nineveh? It's the last thing he wants to do. Does he like those people? He can't stand those people, and so he tries to run. And then, of course, God gets him to go there. And you know, you can run from God all you want; he's going to get you to go there. And then the people, after Jonah preaches, and he's got this real heartfelt message. Remember it? It's not heartfelt. He just walks to the tongue going, "Yet forty days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed." That's his message. He don't want anybody saved. He wants no one repenting. And what do they do? They repent. The whole place gets saved. Is Jonah happy? And then we find out something that Jonah talked to uh, with God about way back in the beginning, but we only find out about it in chapter four of Jonah. When God looks at Jonah and says, why are you so angry? An angry evangelist. Isn't that great? Like having an angry pastor. And then Jonah says this. It's what we talked about. See, I told you, God, I knew that you were God of grace, of compassion, and loving kindness. And I knew it. I knew you were going to save those people. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I didn't want to go. And that's why I ran. Is there grace in the Old Testament? Is God a God of grace everywhere? Remember Jacob tricks his brother Esau? Remember that? Robs him? And then Jacob runs because, you know, Esau's real happy with him, wants to kill him. Because he took his birthright. They've got the blessing, birthright, everything. So Jacob runs. He's he's out there sleeping in the desert because he's messed up bad. Just like, you know, the but he's messed up bad. And he's laying down, puts his head on a rock in the middle of the desert, And then God wakes him up, does he not? And he says, Jacob, now this guy's a fugitive, guys. He's done bad stuff. And God says, Jacob, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And I'm going to bring you back to this place again. You will come back, Jacob. Guys, is that grace? That's grace. He just blew it. He messed it up but he gets to come back to God. That's just the grace of God. You find grace all over the place. Now, the second application I want to bring from that verse is this. Moses gave the law and Jesus gave us grace and truth. Okay. So I'm sitting in a, uh, this is like over 30 years ago, sitting in a theology class. It was an intro to theology class at Vanguard University. And uh, my professor said something to me that I, I had never heard before and I've never forgotten since. And here's what he said. And when he said it, I had to write it down. He said, in the Old Testament, they were under the creation of God. In the New Testament, we are under the Creator. And here's what he meant. In the Old Testament, Moses was given the law, right? That's a creation of God. And they were under the law. Their relationship was with the law. But Jesus comes along, and now it changes everything where you and I are not in a relationship or under the law. We are under Jesus Christ. You see the difference right there? There's a difference between under this and under that. So in the Old Testament, they were under a created thing. In the New Testament, we are under the Creator. Now, let's drill down on that one a little bit more. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 in your Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, if you're in Psalms, Proverbs, go a little bit to the right. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah is a really, really interesting customer. He's prophesying about uh, the siege coming to Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's his contemporary over in Babylon, but he's warning Uh, Zedekiah the king, hey, Babylon's coming. You guys have been in idolatry. You've done so many wrong things. You know, just give in. But Zedekiah don't do it, and he pays a price. But here's one of the cool things that Jeremiah points to in the future, that Jesus also affirms new covenant. Watch this in Jeremiah 31, in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Ah, new covenant. Jesus uses those words. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that was the old covenant law, right? My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But, verse thirty, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Jeremiah speaking, future, Jesus picks up that thing with the new covenant. Declares the Lord, I will put my law, where? Within them, oh, and on their heart. And I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Notice, no intimacy, ganasco, intimate knowing. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember. Say that louder. Their, their sin I will remember no more. God doesn't bring up your sin anymore, guys. Get used to that one right there. Now, here's the difference. In the Old Testament, they're under the creation of God, the laws were written on stone. In the New Testament, the laws are not written at stone. They're written where? In our hearts. That's right. Now think about that for a second. We're in a relationship with God and now the laws are in us because the Spirit of God lives in us. It's an inside out, not an outside in thing. This is what drives me crazy. When I watch some of the things that go on in America right now, and I can take a little more time on these nights than I can on Sundays, but... When I see him trying to re-educate us on certain stupidity, anybody know what I'm talking about? It's just like upside down thinking, hey, who, where'd you get these ideas from? And maybe it's because we know the scriptures. I, I don't know. And they're, it's a fallen world and they're blind. I get that, okay? But they throw all this money at re-educating Americans, right? Anybody ever see that, notice that? They throw tons of money. Can you really re-educate from the outside in? And the answer is, no, you can't. No, you can't. The only way a person changes is from the inside out, where God writes these laws on our heart. But boy, they try and they try and they try to re-educate, re-educate. I'm thinking, would you just quit throwing the money? Give the money to new beginnings. We could do so much good with this money. You're wasting your money. You cannot change people from the outside in. And I don't even agree with what you're trying to re-educate. But people change from the inside out, not from the outside in. Now, let's drill down on this a little bit more, okay? Now listen, because hopefully this will help somebody here. Some Christians still live, some Christians today, still live like Old Testament people, right? Relationship with the law, with the law, with the law. And yet other Christians live like New Testament people, relationship with Jesus Christ, correct? But here's the question. How do I know if I have a stronger relationship with the law than with Jesus Christ? How do I know? And I can tell you from experience, I was the guy who used to have a relationship with the law for so many, probably 15 years of my faith. Let me tell you some ways you know You have a better relationship with the law, the created thing, than with the creator, Jesus Christ. When you sin, feel like you lose your salvation? You have a relationship with the law. Anybody on that one? Anybody know what I mean? It's okay to raise your hand. you You sin and feel like I lost my salvation. Or how about this one? You feel like, well, if I do right, God loves me. But if I do wrong, God's upset with me. Anybody? Raise your hand. Anybody? You have a relationship with the law. Other than Jesus Christ. See, what you're doing is, is you're basing a, a law relationship bases everything on personal performance. And all of a sudden, if you don't do right, you're out of the club, right? And so then you got to do some good stuff so you feel like you're back in the club. you got it backwards. You're not saved based on your performance and how much you can get right. You're saved on what Jesus has already done, correct? And once you settle that and you're going to stumble and you're going to sin, you're not going to sit there and beat yourself up for a day and a half. Because you're going to know you're under the blood, and it's grace upon grace upon grace. The prodigal comes home. Did he blow it big time? And God, Father, just says, "Well, take this. He give you this and give you this because the guy said I, I messed it up." Now think about the prodigal son. Oh no, that's the third thing. Third application. Jumped ahead of myself. Grace means that God favors you, and there's nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing. When you finally get it, you're free. The prodigal son comes home. Remember? Does anybody remember what he's muttering to himself? He's muttering his prayer of repentance to the father. And here's what he's saying. And he's walking home. And he's filthy. He's stinky. He's a long way off. And he's muttering these words. I mean, i got to get this right so when I see my dad. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired slaves. What is the only thing he thinks he can be when he comes home? Servant, an employee of his father in the business. I can never be a son again. That's what he's thinking. And he keeps repeating it and repeating. And then when he gets there, and dad grabs him and kisses him, and the Greek is he repeatedly kisses him, and the kid stinks. He says, dad, dad, I got to tell you something. And he says, dad, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. he goes, (laughs) Dad never lets him say the last line. Dad never lets him say, make me as one of your hired servants. He stops him. And he says, quickly, give him the robe, give him the ring, give him the shoes, slay the fattened calf. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Did you catch that? There was nothing he could do to earn that thing whatsoever. It was just the grace of God. He says, you're not coming back as a sl- slave or an employee in my business. You're a full-blown son. You got it? You got it. Okay, never forget that. Now, let me give you one more thing about Moses' law, Jesus' grace. Question, did Moses take the people in the promised land? Say no. Did, who took them in the promised land? Joshua. That's a very important principle or idea right there or truth, I should say. Um, Joshua took them in. Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew name. English spelling is Joshua. Joshua. Jesus is the Greek transliteration from the Hebrew Yeshua to the English spelling Jesus. Okay, you got that? I know you don't, but it's okay. The picture is this. The law can't save us. It can't take us into the promised land. Moses didn't get in there. Only Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus saves us, delivers us, and takes us all the way. Amen? Amen? The law can never take you in. Obeying the law can never bring you peace and joy and get you. Just Jesus himself, grace and truth. Now, let's go back to John 1:18 for our final verse, but we got a lot to say in our final verse. <laughs> okay. Now, look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Say, explained. explained. I'll try it again. Say, explained. explained. That's a big word now. Now, notice it says, no one has seen God at any time. Now, let me show you something that might save you one day if you're ever dialoguing with certain people. Turn to Exodus chapter 33, second book in the Old Testament. Go way to your left if you're new to the Bible. Exodus 33, watch this. This is where Moses is um, dialoguing with God. Now, when you're in Exodus 33, say, I'm there. Okay. I heard you, Jacob. Look at verse 8. Verse 18, yeah. Uh, Exodus thirty-three eighteen. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Is that a loaded prayer or what? Moses asked God, show me your glory. Whoa. Verse 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, as God speaking? You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory, the Shekinah, is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, listen. At some point, somebody is going to say, well, Moses saw God. If Moses saw God, Moses would have what? He would have died. He didn't see God. He saw the glory of God. He saw God go, the afterglow of this glory of God. Okay, if you ever get a knock at the door, and they're standing there with their little elder black badges on right there, and they're wearing white shirts and ties, and they got two bikes outside, (laughs) you ever get a dialogue, and I used to dialogue with Mormons all the time, I I have, I rarely do it anymore, um, but I used to just get a kick out of it, um, they're going to tell you that God, the God of this world, the Father, once was a physical man like me, and yet, and he still has a physical body, but he's exalted to this, um, the, to, to becoming the God of this planet. They're going to tell you, God the Father. And then they're going to say this, and this is so, I do, so you don't get stumped. Look at verse 11 of Exodus 33. They're going to say, Look, because they tried, that. they did this to me years, decades ago. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses how? Face to face. Just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, and would not depart from the tent. They say, Look, God has a physical body. God would speak to Moses face to face. God has a face. Now, if they tell you that, what are you going to tell them? Now you got to think. Now you got to take them back to later in the chapter. Verse 20, once again, look at verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and? Okay, so we know that. So we know that Moses didn't really see God's face, correct? Because if he would have seen God's face, he would have what? So now you know that face to face, and look at verse 11 again, so you read every little detail. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, say the words, just as. Just as so now you know it's metaphor. It's like just like you would be speaking to a person, but we know God is spirit, and we know if we see God, we die. So it's a it's a it's it's a statement. It's a metaphor. He didn't really see him face to face. So when he takes you, a Mormon takes you back to say, "Look at verse um uh, the uh, twenty three again in chapter thirty three. Then I will take my what hand away, and you'll see my back seat. Oh, he said, like, see that's hand in the back? No, no, it's metaphor. It's not it's not actual." Because if you see God, you're going to what? You're going to die. Now, they press this and press this. And here's what I do. If they press it. This is just because I'm a smart mouth, okay? I say, well, let's look at Psalm 91. You don't have to turn there. It says that we dwell under the mighty wings of God, right? They go, so then God has wings. He must be a chicken, right? Right? And I tell, I'll tell, i do that, I'll tell them. I, and they go, oh, no, no, I go, wait, either he does or he doesn't. I go, so does he have one? Well, no, I go, it's a metaphor, right? Yeah, I go, good, we've made progress. And I take them that way. But you gotta be careful, you gotta know how to answer these questions as they come back, come at you. Now, turn back to John chapter one, verse 18 again. And we're gonna drive it home with this tonight. Watch this. <clears throat> No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Okay, one of the cool things about that statement there, he's in the bosom of the Father. In other words, he's right there with the Father. Even though Jesus came down, took flesh, he never broke union with the Father, did he? He's always real close. We know that John, the disciple at the Last Supper, was leaning against the bosom of Jesus, right? It's a picture of close union. So we know Jesus was always, even though he's down here in the flesh, he was always in close union with the Father until that moment in time on the cross when Jesus utters the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment in time, because he's carrying your sins and mine, all of mankind's on his body, and God the Father is holy. God the Father had to turn away, and for the first time in his eternal existence, Jesus now, knows what separation from God is really like. That's what hell feels like, by the way. So for the first time, he feels that. It's the only time he felt there was a disconnection of the union, and he did that for you and I, so that you and I could come into union with him. Now, when you look at John one eighteen, it says there, or I should say, let me draw from this, because he's in the bosom with the Father, that's intimacy, therefore, he knows what the Father is like, And he's able to tell us what the Father's like. Amen? Okay, let's take that idea. Look at verse 18. What's the last line there? He has explained him. Remember, no one can see God and live, but Jesus has explained him. Interesting. Interesting. Look at verse 15. John testified about him. John the Baptist is testifying about Jesus, right? But Jesus came to testify and explain the the Father. Hmm, that's interesting. The word explained. We get our word exegesis. It's critical interpretation of Scripture. In other words, You discover what the true intended meaning of the scriptures are. So Jesus comes to earth and he lives his life in a way and he's giving us the true true picture of who God the Father really is. What he's really like. Not what you and I wanted God, God to be like. Not what we'd like to twist him into what we'd be like. But what is he really, really like. There's an interesting statement Jesus makes. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Now watch this. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, watch Jesus' statement. He says this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law. In other words, Jesus had a high view of the law, did he not? Or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to, say it, fulfill. Now the word fulfill, that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to means to fill out, to expand, and to complete. In other words, he came to fill up the Old Testament with true meaning of what it means and who God is. It's very, very important. Watch. In Matthew 5. Because here's why he came to do it. One of the reasons why he came to do it. Look at verse 21 and 22. Jesus speaking, he says, You, speaking to the people, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, and then he goes on to teach. Now watch verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, look at verse 31. It says, It was said, whoever sends wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, look at verse 38. It says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, what is Jesus doing there? He's giving us explanation of what these things mean. He's come to explain to us what the Father meant, what these things are all about. How many of you here have been portrayed incorrectly by someone else? Someone talked to you about you, portrayed you incorrectly. Isn't that fun? It's real fun, huh? Try being a pastor. It's real fun. How people portray you, how they talk. If you don't do what somebody says, Christians are the worst. It's the non-believers. I can, it's easy, to, but the Christians, if you don't do what they want, oh boy, they're going to talk about you. Real Christian, huh? Okay, I can say that here, but anyway. Now, <clears throat> let me tell you, just a side note before I talk about this. Someone starts saying stuff about you, portraying you incorrectly. Don't go around defending yourself. Don't waste your time. In quietness and in trust will be my strength. I've been incorrectly portrayed countless times. I'm not gonna go around defending myself I'm not going around looking for the... I'm not going to do those things. You know why? Because I'm not eight years old. The people that talk about people and portray them, they're little immature children. They may be 30, 40, 50 years old, but they're emotionally a child. I've taught you that many times, right? you got to understand that. You're dealing with an emotional child. Why am I going to go down back to third grade again emotionally and become that, i leave it alone. I don't mess with it. I throw no fire on it, I put no logs on it, nothing. It'll just go out on its own. How many of you in this room, you think you have to put out every fire in your life? You're going to going to waste your time. You don't charge every hill. You've got to pick the ones that are worth charging, the ones that just let it go. Let it go. Portrayed incorrectly. In Jesus' day, people had wrong ideas about God. Can you imagine the day Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers? What were they teaching the people about God? That God just wants your money and you can never please God. And Jesus comes and rips that thing apart because they had wrong ideas about God. And so Jesus comes to explain God the Father. This is what it really means. Now, <clears throat> so I'm, you guys all know by now, I, I study at a coffee shop a couple times a week. I go there one day a week in the morning for work so I can study and do prep work for Sunday messages. I always try to stay three weeks ahead of things. And then I go on my day off, I go study in the morning um, while Olivia's getting all dolled up for me when I get home, so I'm like, I'm just <laughs> um, So one time I'm sitting there, and I always sit at this one table, I have my chair, and everybody knows my chair, all the regulars. And there's a chair on the other side, and I'm studying. My Bible's open. I prop up this little notebook here. My Bible sits on it. I got my coffee here, and I'm just going at it, just what I do. A guy sits at the table next to me. It's like four months ago, and he does this. He goes, and I'm right here. He goes, praise God. I thought, okay, he wanted me to hear that because I'm so discerning, right? <laughs> and then he says, hey, can I sit across from you? Sure. So, which is not unusual. So he sits across from me. <clears throat> and he starts to share with me. So starts to talk to me. And within about a minute, I'm thinking, this guy is so off biblically, he's not even in the same biblical universe but he's trying to be biblical, but he's like off base. And then he says this to me. I'd like you to meet someone. My mind, my spirit says, oh, he's in a cult and he's a recruiter. I have a recruiter in front of me. You got to pick up on it fast because that's what's going on. I'd like you to meet someone. I'd like you to talk to them. And I said, No, thank you. And I did play. Poli- no, thank you. And our conversation is officially over. Bye. And I went back to study. And he, he, he didn't know what to do. <laughs> he got up and he left, okay? But I didn't have to give him any more than that. He's trying to recruit me some kind of call. I go, no. Because I already dialogued with him. Dialogue, and he wasn't listening to anything I had to say. But he was off. He was just off biblically. Listen, followers of Christ. Listen closely. There are plenty of people that interpret the scriptures incorrectly. And they just do. And they just do. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. Because we, can, we can't be that way. Because we are, like Jesus, explaining the Father. We're giving people what the Father really looks like. Look, I'm a blunt, prophet-motivated, John the Baptist type. And I've had to learn to watch myself because I don't want to portray God the Father certain ways because I know what I'm like. I know what I'm like. But there's people out there like that. Jesus came to explain the Father. That's why you've heard me say so many times when I lead people to Christ in a service, now, get yourself a Bible. We have them here Stay in the New Testament for about two years. You've heard me say that, right? And learn about Jesus, the one that you have now put your faith in. Just learn about him. Stay right there and learn about the God-man who came to explain the Father to you. And stay there. And that's what some of us might need to do in our life again. Just do that. Because we are the ones called to explain the Father. We're the ones called to testify of who he is. Amen. I'm out of time, so let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, for um, tonight and uh, for your word. I just pray, Lord, we, we go home with grace. We understand that it, it, it's not dependent upon our performance. Grace is simply grace. And you give it to us. We, we could have blown it so big time like Jacob did. And yet you say, oh, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and uh, I'm going to come back, and you're going to be back again, I'm going to do all these things for you. And it's like, are you kidding me? That blows me away. The moment we repent, God puts into motion all the restoration pieces. When you come back, you're not a a servant, you're not an employee. you're You're a son of God, you're a daughter of God. You have a relationship with Jesus, not the law. And I want you to leave here thinking that way, knowing that way, that when you make a mistake and sin, you haven't lost your salvation. That is concrete. It is finished. And we thank you, God, for that security, for that standing before you, Jesus. Thank you so much that our identity is set in you. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all say amen amen and amen. Well, God bless you guys. Thank you for coming out on a rainy, freezing night. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.